Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're back for another uh, episode of Gov Actually. This will be um, a surprising deviation from many prior episodes because we're going to actually talk about the budget in OMB today. So I, <laughs> right. I think that will be new and interesting to our but listeners. Don't forget to mention. Don't forget to mention. I think it's our fiftieth episode. So this, I, I don't know. I, I, I tried to do that before and I got the number wrong. So I'm going to say 50. we're roughly the 50th episode here. Okay. We're okay. roughly the 50th episode. And, and, and therefore we're, we're roughly honored. No, we're more than roughly honored to include Steve McMillan, um, who is, um, who had several senior roles in the, uh, in the Bush administration, particularly in OMB. Currently he's the, um, uh, uh, a partner in the economic and public policy consulting firm, U.S. Policy Metrics, LLC. But most importantly, I think to our discussion, he was the deputy director of the, the budget deputy director of OMB. And we can talk a little bit about the difference between that and the management deputy director. He worked in the chief of staff's office. He was a associate director of OMB, focusing on general government. And that one's uh, true to my heart because I had been a special assistant to that very pad uh, and back in the sands of time. And because he's also, I feel like we're kind of tracking careers. He's on the board of Metro, which is uh, a, a whole other episode. Um, but more importantly, or in more relevant to this discussion, he did some work um, uh, for the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and, and Urban Affairs, where he was uh, uh, worked as an economist. So I think our broader conversation about budgets, budget deficits, um, and, and their impact on, on our economy. Steve's an excellent person to, to have this conversation. Yeah. And before we turn it over to Steve, I want to say like one of the ways in which we pick our topics to talk about on Gov actually is usually like people call me and ask me questions that I don't exactly know how to answer. And so I said, well, let's get a good guest on Gov Actually and ask that question. And one of the um, questions that's come up a lot lately is, do de deficits matter? I mean, because we're seeing these enormous appropriation stimulus bills in the wake of, um, of the pandemic. Um, we're seeing giant numbers being thrown around for an upcoming potential infrastructure bill. Um, and, uh, in, and during the previous administration, we saw big numbers coming across in terms of deficit growth and, uh, and the growth of the national debt. And there have been periods of time in which the national dialogue has been, oh, no, this is a calamity. We can't have these types of debt to GDP ratios. We can't manage these types of deficits. They're unsustainable. And then there are moments where it's like, well, the, debts, the debt and the deficit aren't as important uh, as we once thought. We need to get money into the economy, and it's important right now. So I don't know how to answer those questions on my own, because as you know, Dan, I was on the management side of OMB. Um, <laughs> Steve was on the budget side of OMB. Steve, welcome to Gov. Actually, do deficits matter? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, it, no, it's great to have you. So 
Um, so what do you think? How do you, do you get asked that question at all? And what do you, and what do you tell people? Well, the crowd I hang out with uh, who used to, and I think still in our hearts, answer that question with an emphatic yes, um, uh, mostly kind of sit around depressed these days that um, the concern and the uh, imperative to action that uh, deficits used to inspire just uh, is not there and uh, has, been, has been declining for quite some time. Um, the, it, it used to be just taken as a given that uh, deficits, while tolerated, uh, were ultimately bad, um, that uh, they crowd out private investments, that they, uh, uh, when poorly timed, overstimulate the economy, leading to inflation, high interest rates, and other bad things. Uh, and over the past uh, decade in particular, when we've seen these just uh, previously inconceivable uh, levels of deficit spending and borrowing, uh, I'm reminded of Blazing Saddles where Sheriff Bart uh, uh, says to uh, the Waco kid, uh, if a man drinks like that and doesn't eat, he is going to die. To which the Waco kid replies, when? And uh, that's kind of the position deficit hawks have been in for uh, a little while here that um, I, I think we still believe those consequences are real. We, we never thought that they would pop up immediately, that uh, it was more of a, uh, you know, generally supportable in the uh, academic literature, long-term consequence of sustained undisciplined fiscal behavior. But, uh, you know, here we are trillions of dollars in borrowing later. Um, uh, inflation until the past few months here has been tame. Uh, interest rates are at, uh, at low levels we haven't seen since before World War II on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, it begs the question, okay, if, if these negative consequences are coming, um, when? And none of us want to root for those just to feel vindicated. Uh, but I think we still harbor that concern and, and uh, uh, fear when we look at, uh, you know, the, the roughly 50% increase in federal spending that's taking place uh, in in basically the past year. Yes, it's in response to um, a pandemic and the economic effects that that, uh, that imposed. But, uh, you know, there's a, uh, again, without trying to be partisan, uh, taking, your, uh, taking your lead here, we have a budget proposal that was sent to Congress uh, last week that says, uh, that $6 trillion level, we're never going below that. Um, it was, you know, $4 trillion federal budget was a milestone only recently achieved. And now we're at six and we're staying at six. And uh, so whatever those temporary measures were, um, we've got some more temporary measures and then some more temporary measures after that. And um, uh, at least an attempt uh, or a proposal to make that level of federal uh, activity permanent. 
So we're at the point where deficit, um, deficit virtue is a question of, you know, to what extent am I willing to mitigate some of the deficit increasing effects of the policies that are, that are the main thing I want to do. So, you know, we had uh, a big COVID relief package uh, earlier this year, following on several from last year. And uh, nobody was going to pay for that. And one could argue that that's justified. But, uh, you know, the range of fiscal discipline was I'm willing to spend many hundreds of billions without an offset versus a couple of trillion without an offset. Um, similar debate going on now with infrastructure um, that, uh, you know, I'm willing to spend a trillion instead of two trillion. I'd like to offset some of it, but not all of it. Um, and that's just a, a very difficult line to hold. And um, uh, it's, yeah. It's something that um, I think is a hard pattern to break out of. Uh, can, can we talk about some of the negative consequences? Um, you know, I think you know, some of the ones that you hear, for example, are, look, China is, uh, you know, the one that's, you know, kind of buying up our bonds and giving us, you know, where do we get the cash? You know, we're going to spend another trillion, another two trillion. We don't have, we have more money going out than coming in. So we need the cash. And how we get the cash is we, um, you know, sell bonds on the open market and China buys them up. And so we're, you know, so we owe a lot of money to China and the more money we owe to China. And if that's growing and growing and growing, that's not a good thing. Well, it sounds like not a good thing, but how does that ultimately manifest itself? Like you're, I love the, the movie reference because it's like, when does that come home to roost for us? And what does that look like? Well, uh, the concern about foreign ownership, Chinese in particular, I, I think was a, a, a bigger issue um, back when I was working in government. Uh, it, it had, their holdings as a share of total holdings had, had grown substantially at that time. But uh, mitigating that concern was uh, what a uh, self-injury it would be to the Chinese to use that leverage on us, that uh, if they decided to um, uh, suddenly try to do us harm through their uh, uh, significant position in, in, in US debt holdings, um, it, it would harm them as well. And, and that's a concern that I think has, has faded over time. But what you see now is uh, the, the largest and fastest growing uh, purchaser and owner of US debt is the Federal Reserve. So um, in, during my time in government, not that long ago, the uh, Federal Reserve held uh, in its portfolio, something on the order of seven to $800 billion worth of US treasuries. And um, the primary purpose of that was to have a, a stock of financial instruments to help ensure the smooth operation of certain financial markets and uh, to have uh, a reserve that would help them in their uh, conduct of monetary policy. So from seven to eight hundred billion dollars, um, we had uh, quantitative easing 
multiple rounds of it. And uh, those holdings grew quickly to the two to three trillion dollar range. And over the past several months alone, we have seen that uh, rise to now $5.1 trillion. So you've gone from a situation where the Federal Reserve uh, was holding something on the order of 10 to 15% of US debt. Uh, now they hold about a quarter and uh, of recently issued federal debt, uh, the Fed's buying about half of it. So, and is uh, that and why is that concerning? Like, what are some of the negative implications of that? So, what you have is a concept uh, people call monetization of the debt. That uh, uh, essentially, what they're doing in buying that is printing more money, uh, undermining the currency, potentially uh, creating an inflationary situation. And so, you know, we had a couple uh, consecutive concerning. Um, uh, inflation reports here. Um, so you are, uh, for the first time in a long time, starting to see at least some public debate about, uh, you know, hey, maybe we are overstimulating here. Maybe we are um, uh, running a risk of a return of inflation. And then uh, uh, when that happens, uh, the Fed is left with two difficult choices, either accept the damage inflation can do to the economy or start raising interest rates, pulling back the money supply and risking uh, uh, risking recession. So we've been so sort of continuing to buy our way out of that cycle, or at least trying to minimize uh, the bottom of those cycles. But um, you know, we're, we're in uncharted waters. We don't know at what point um, Fed easing will uh, risk restarting this inflation cycle that was so, so hard to break uh, at the end of the 70s and the early 80s. Steve, it, it, it seems to me that we're at this interesting inflection point in uh, the evolution of our economy. It's similar to the unofficial... Uh, um, uh, loss of the gold standard starting in the Roosevelt administration leading to the abandonment in the Nixon administration. We're at this point where for those of us who you know, grew up in OMB, uh, you know, I, I started under the Bush senior administration all through the Clinton administration. I was very proud when I left in 1997 that we had, we had a balanced budget, right? And that seemed to be a great thing, although there was fear that what would it do to the treasury markets? Um, uh, we're shifting now to this idea where both parties seem to accept the idea. In fact, it was Cheney once famously said deficits don't matter, um, accept this idea that maybe a balanced budget isn't a mandatory or necessary goal of a federal administration. It's more a focus on not, not unlocking the genie of inflation and not turning inflation, that that seems to be the scarier thing than deficits or debt. Is, is, that, is that more and more where people are headed? I, I, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, I mostly agree with your assessment there that um, uh, you know, perhaps there has been a shift in the view whether balance was really the right goal all along. Um, but also we're so far from balance, um, it, it just seems silly to even discuss 
what do we need to do to get to balance? Uh, can we set some more achievable goals that um, uh, you know involve some other type of metric? So you know, deficit as the share of the economy not rising, or, or, or total debt as a share of the economy stabilized at some level. Um, and uh, you know, among the many things OMB is good at is coming up with a line in a uh, table at the end of the budget that explains why it's all okay. So, uh, and, and I, I, I don't intend to get into a critique of this particular one here, but you know, at various times, uh, deficits of 2% of GDP or 3% or even 4% were thought to be sustainable. That uh, as long as you have uh, historical levels of economic growth, we can handle that debt service. So uh, uh, there appeared in this year's budget for the first time um, uh, a, a line called real net interest as a share of GDP. Uh, and uh, this, this grew out of some work that uh, Jason Furman and others have, have done lately. Um, uh, and without commenting on the merits necessarily, uh, the notion that the right measure of whether our fiscal position is sustainable is whether the um, amount of interest we're paying on the debt each year um, uh, sort of reduced uh, or, or modified with uh, the, the current inflation metric uh, is too big or too small. And so we're, we're, uh, we've got uh, currently uh, negative real interest rates uh, for treasuries, inflation running roughly two and um, a lot of the new borrowing running at roughly one to two. So does that mean we're making money by borrowing? I, that concept doesn't really ring true for the whole me. negative but, interest rate thing is hard to wrap your head around yeah actually but, but. The, uh, the 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 line he uses is something along something along the lines of it's a measure of how much we can inflate our way out of the debt and this gets back to this concept where uh you know if the federal reserve buys it all up prints more cash eventually uh, inflation makes the debt small in terms of our ability to pay, but what other havoc does that cause in the process? Doesn't this negative, uh, negative interest rate reminds me of the, the question, uh, if you go to the post office and mail a helium balloon, does the post office owe you money? Uh, because it's negative weight. But anyway, um, so I have a question. Uh, now that one takes a little bit of time to, um, my question is um, a different, you know, a different evolution of thinking on a, on a public policy problem, which is, um, and actually I, you know, Dan and I were talking before the podcast that a, 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 another guest to have on this, uh, if she was still alive would be Alice Rivlin. And the last time I saw Alice Rivlin, I asked her, this question, which I, I told her that, um, that when I was, you know, kind of first forming my first interest in government, you know, it was back in the days when Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House and 
And I first learned this concept that the Social Security Trust Fund was on an unsustainable path because at some point in the very distant future, 2010, the baby boom generation would start to retire and we'd have more people collecting Social Security than paying into Social Security. And it would put the Social Security Trust Fund on, a, on an unsustainable path. And this was a big problem. And back then the idea was we need to think about some type of entitlement reform. Um, and then years and years later, you know, we hit 2010. Um, we're now a decade past 2010. And um, people aren't talking about this issue in the same way that they used to, both Medicare and Social Security. And I don't feel like entitlement reform is as prominent as an issue as it once was uh, to deal with that. And so, Steve, any, any thoughts on where that issue is in this mix? Is it, is it just dormant now or am I not reading the right, the right newspaper articles or listening to the right debates? Is that, is that actually still prominent? I think dormant or worse, uh, you have um, you have a significant faction of one party that uh, wants to expand entitlement spending, and you have only a small faction in the other party that actually would like to take some political risk to um, uh, pull back on entitlements. Um, so the sort of the, the balance of intensity and, and uh, courage that the competing sides are bringing to the table is, is, is not even at the moment. Um, the uh, part, part of the, I, 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 I see two sources for um, why that entitlement battle has, has kind of faded into the background. Um, uh, and really over several decades, uh, you've seen both major political parties, I think, transformed where you used to have uh, Northeastern liberal Republicans and Southern conservative Democrats. And, uh, you know, you could be partisan, but it was harder to be, you know, purely ideological and partisan at the same time. And you could uh, in fact, put together some coalitions that uh, uh, sort of confounded party leaders and forced them to take on some of these topics. So, um, uh, you know, thinking back um, to, to like the uh, early 90s, uh, you had a very significant, at the time, uh, effort to rein in spending even beyond what had been signed into law in the 1990-1993 budget deals. Um, but it was uh, Democratic Senator uh, Jim Exon who joined with Chuck Grassley to um, impose through the congressional budget resolution uh, some additional uh, spending uh, restraint that, that had not, was not in law, had not been part of previous budget deals and didn't have significantly uh, any other spending or tax goodies uh, to try to sell them. Um, so the conservative Southern Democrat almost doesn't exist anymore. The uh, liberal Northeastern Republican is also uh, a very rare species now. So uh, for either side to have the political courage to reach across and take on something as dicey's entitlements is, is much, much harder than it used to be. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in the House of Representatives as well, uh, I think you'd find 
most members are far more worried about their primary opponent than their general election opponent, just because so many uh, districts out there are pretty solidly Republican or solidly Democrat. And so uh, uh, reaching across the aisle for something that's uh, politically difficult like this uh, is suicide come primary season. Uh, second thing is that um, so many of the metrics we've used to measure whether we have an entitlement problem and how deep it is have been a little bit arbitrary. Um, and you can even start beyond that, uh, the, the debt ceiling. Uh, the statutory limit on the debt is a very, very arbitrary combination of uh, debt issued to private entities, debt issued to the Federal Reserve, debt issued to the Social Security Trust Fund, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it pops up and the world will come to an end if we don't do something about it. And so its use as a tool to take on entitlements is, has pretty much evaporated and you have significant people on both sides saying, let's just get rid of the debt ceiling. Now we're in this period where we just suspend the debt ceiling and reset it. Um, and so its use as a uh, uh, tool to constrain spending is gone. Social Security Trust Funds, um, well, should we worry about the balance of special securities in the trust fund? Should we worry about when there's a net outflow from the trust fund? You know, what's, what's the date where things really go bad? And, um, you know, the deficit hawk, the fiscal hawk is always going to want to, you know, pick the earliest date where something horrible is going to happen, where um, uh, in cases of security, uh, benefit spending uh, has exceeded tax revenue for several years now, but nobody really noticed because the checks keep flowing. Uh, Medicare, even harder, because uh, you only have the hospital side with a trust fund that's uh, financed by a payroll tax, where there's some concern about um, the solvency of that trust fund. The you know, half of Medicare, the or, or you know, the other big chunk of traditional Medicare Part B, um, it has a trust fund, but uh, its income source is general revenues from the Treasury. So whatever it spends, the Treasury fills it in. So the Part B trust fund is always solvent because it always has an unlimited uh, uh, draw on the Treasury. So. Yeah, you know, we've, we've never come up with a good hook. Uh, during our time in, in the Bush administration, we had, uh, we had a Medicare trigger uh, where the, if the combined, I'm gonna say it wrong, but if the combined expenditures from part A and part B uh, uh, exceeded 4% of something, I, I don't even know what it was, but when that happened, that triggered a situation where the president could send a proposal to Congress to um, uh, 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 to fix the imbalance in the trust fund, and then Congress would have to act on it. And uh, I think we sent something once, and there was a huge collective eye roll from Congress. Uh, we've we, we just never come up with the right metrics that show a near-term consequence that worries people for the uh, for the imbalance that's come up. Isn't isn't part of that though also uh, 
there's an unwillingness to actually link it to revenue raising. So if that trigger actually generated a higher payroll tax, that that might actually, you know, bring more people to the table. There, there's this unwillingness to link maybe that expenditure with the, the revenue. And what you've had is kind of an unstated kind of agreement that some folks will go after increasing entitlements and other people will go after decreasing tax burden. And that seems to be the, the directions that have kind of created this big, you know, um, this big hole in the middle of the budget. Uh, yeah, uh, leaving, leaving aside the merits of the arguments, you, you definitely have um, uh, one side that is more willing to attach revenue increases to um, either deficit solutions or, or uh, spending proposals they want to do. Uh, the other side um, interested in minimizing taxation, but not necessarily uh, as strong a commitment to pair that with spending restraint to offset it. And, and certainly uh, uh, a longstanding and, and uh, I think pretty and, and growing unwillingness to uh, at least have their names on uh, tax increases as, as part of a solution. Um, looking back, I, I, I want to say 1990, that may be the only example I can think of where you had two parties coming together on a product that reduced the deficit through a combination of spending restraint and tax increases. And uh, and ultimately led to that surplus that the that the Clinton administration generated in that ninety seven budget. So it was really the Budget Enforcement Act in ninety one. It was the Bush administration abandoning the no new taxes pledge um, that some say cost uh, that senior Bush his uh, his second term. That actually and, led. And to there that. is a lesson in that. And if you go back and if. You know, if you ask people, the 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 credit you gave to uh, the elder George Bush right there is is not something he normally receives. Um, it was, uh, you know, the surplus happened on Clinton's watch. Um, it happened uh, while Republicans controlled the Congress, and that's sort of where the battle for credit takes place. Was it the uh, you know, willingness to uh, take the political heat for um, uh, raising revenue that uh, that President Clinton uh, endured and, you know, probably lost the Congress as a result of because he had more tax increases in 93? Um, or was it the uh, spending restraint that um, uh, President Clinton was forced to adopt because uh, the Republican Congress uh, took power explicitly with a pledge to balance the budget, something that uh, is, is hard to find in Republican action plans or anybody's action plans these days. Um, you know, you-, you and, and that, that credit for- What you had, I think, was a combination of both setting the table and then an economy that just roared in the second right. half of the 90s. Right. And uh, none of the normal- budget prediction models saw that surplus coming until it was already there. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it's interesting. I think you, there were, there were folks in, in the senior Bush, um, 
senior president Bush's party, own party, who didn't want to give him credit because that meant abandoning the no new taxes pledge was actually the the right thing to do. So I, I think what you have is this complicated um, partisan, endlessly partisan fight over trying to um, uh, uh, keep the issue an issue rather than solve it um, as, as evidence from the, um, uh, what was the big bipartisan commission um, uh, that came together during the Obama administration? Erskine Bowles was one. Bowles Simpson. Bowles Simpson. Bowles Simpson Bowles. Yeah, Simpson Bowles. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely harkening back to an, an earlier uh, model of Democrat and Republican there. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we got into this, the, 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 the substance of that commission's work I think informed some of the things that got put on the table there, but uh, when it came to uh, you know actually empowering through that uh, joint commission in the uh, 2011 Budget Control Act, uh, ultimately elected officials could not reach that deal. Um, so you were left with the backstop of spending cuts, and um, both sides, I think. Um, gambled. Uh, I, I think I think Democrats gamble in 2011 paid off later, um, but maybe not in the way they uh, had hoped. Uh, Democrats took a deal that didn't have explicit tax increases in it because defense spending was threatened. And uh, you know the one thing the theory went that could make a Republican support a tax increase is if uh, defense spending was at risk. Well, defense spending got cut, and what we had was not Republican acquiescence in tax increases, but Republican acquiescence in busting those spending caps for both non-defense and defense uh, with some offsets that uh, really weren't worthy of the name. Uh, so it was more sort of uh, Republican acquiescence in um backing off the deficit reduction on a uh, global basis and not so much acquiescence in, in tax increases. It's interesting how, you know, we reflect back on the nineties, like, like it, it's, it feels so long ago now, not only in years, but in just everything is so different uh, in terms of politics and personalities and the way government ran back then. Um, but Steve, this was, this was awesome. Um, if we judge, I guess, by how much I learned, uh, you were an A plus um, and, uh, and really appreciate you, uh, you coming on and, and talking through these uh, fairly depressing, but also <laughs> super illuminating points around uh, around where we are fiscally today as a, as a government. I think it's an achievement that none of us have jumped out the window or started drinking at 8.30 in the morning yet, so. Yeah, I mean, one of my depressing takeaways is like, I think I joined government when we were at a surplus and then it's been all downhill since then from that standpoint, so um, we're my track record, yeah. Well, Steve, it was great seeing you. Thank you so much for joining and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. We'll see where things go. Yeah. Thanks for talking to you. Thank you.
All right, Danny, um, we are not taking our normal break because uh, Steve was so thoughtful and so smart and, and raised a bunch of issues. I almost want to have a whole other episode with him because I want to get into this idea of what's called modern monetary theory or MMT. Um, uh, Stephanie Kelton wrote a book, uh, The Deficit Myth, that seems to you know, argue these whole questions like really, it, it really is only inflation that ultimately matters. And well, maybe that, we can have Jason Furman on and explain yeah. that video as well. Well, I, I don't know if Jason would share that view. Um, the interesting thing about Stephanie's book, which which leads to another topic, we've said we should have an episode on, um, uh, which is you know uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, is in her book, which was published just last year, there is no mention of the word Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. Um, uh, blockchain. None. And I looked in the index, I've looked in the book. And so the question is, do you think that, is it possible that the emergence of these parallel currencies is people saying, is losing faith, is it an emblematic sense of people losing faith in our sovereign currency, which as Steve- But we haven't out, had an inflationary period right. uh, in, in decades. And yeah. therefore, you know, the world is so different. Um, what does it mean to have an inflation, uh, the, the dollar to lose value when there's alternative currencies in place? You know, I don't know. I mean, these are the types of things that we're going to potentially learn. Yeah. So, no, I, I think that there's we, we probably should grab someone from the Fed. Um, yeah. uh, it'd be great if we could get um, former Treasury colleague and Fed uh, a board member, Lael Brainard, but she probably can't talk because if, when she does, she moves markets, right? People that would, we would have a lot of listenership on that one. But, um, but <laughs> these questions about, you know, the Fed buying treasuries is very interesting thing. And by doing that, they're basically printing money to buy the treasuries and then just injecting more money into the economy. In theory, that should mean with that much more cash coming in, then there's more available cash, um, for the same amount of resources, that would be inflation. But we're not seeing inflation yet, except in certain areas where there's certain kinds of scarcity, like lumber. That's the big... Uh, and that, is that inflation or is that a disrupted supply chain from yeah. COVID? Who knows? And I think, I think people who are making these decisions are betting it's a disrupted supply chain. People who are abhorring these decisions are saying, look, it's inflation. And yeah. so it's an interesting question, which it is. Hey, Danny, before we leave, um, I want to uh, uh, send um, thoughts and prayers to the family of a podcast adjacent writer, uh, someone who's done an awful lot to bring attention to how government actually works. And that's Michael Lewis. Um, he lost uh, his daughter in a tragic car accident, oh, a 19 year old daughter. Yeah. Um, him and his wife, Tabitha, their, their other two kids are probably suffering, you know, so much. And, you know, just for someone who's done so much to bring attention to how government actually works, how the appointment process works, how, um, you know, the deep, deep commitment of public servants, you know, he's got a whole series coming out about, um, about you know the fifth risk, these issues associated with you know what happens when you don't invest and care about agencies. This is someone who really deeply cares 
about these issues and done so much to raise awareness. And I just think, you know, it just pains me to hear of any parent losing a kid. Um, but I thought I should, uh, I should point it out for, for our listeners. For, I know they care. I will, I will absolutely uh, pray and, and send the best possible wishes, but that is just an, an enormous tragedy. So I, I hate to end such a good podcast. Well, I don't know. The whole, the whole podcast was, uh, was kind of, um, it's challenging one to think about these things. Um, but um, I, I do, you know, we do recognize ultimately at the end, you know, it's very human work that's happening with, with, with you know, individuals and people in their lives with their personal victories and, and sadly their tragedies as well. And that's what it's actually all about in the end. Yeah, you know, um, Congressman Cummings, uh, God rest his soul, you know, he used to do this thing, you know, as a, when he was chair of government oversight, um, where, you know, they beat up on witnesses who have, you know, made, mis- you know, who are public servants, but made mistakes or were caught in the middle of something bad. And, um, and he had this thing he would do at the end of the hearing where he'd, he'd, um, build them back up and say, you know, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a father, you're a mother, you, you, you're, you're, you know, he, he would remind the, the audience and the listeners that, uh, and the rest of the panel members that these are, these are human beings that are, you know, uh, hugely productive members of society with, with good hearts and good souls. And just for the moment caught in the political theater of, of oversight and C-SPAN and, 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 and the way our, our congressional process works sometimes. And uh, Elijah Cummings wanted to remind Americans that, you know, there, there's a theatrical element to this and there's a real element to this. And, um, and, and, and the, the government workforce, which sometimes, uh, and people who champion the government workforce, uh, who sometimes get, you know, made fun of or called bureaucrats, they're all, um, they're, they're, you know, 999,000 out of a million of them are, uh, are, are amazing people that are upstanding citizens and living their lives and doing good things. So, I, and I know that's always been uh, something that's very important to you, Danny. So thank you so much for another great podcast. And we'll, uh, we'll look forward to crossing paths again soon. Thank you, Dan.